Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Oh, my David Kira Murphy and Ken Early here with the first Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast of the Week, gentlemen. How are you doing? Good Hello there, all. Good to see you too, Ken. Matt O'Connor was a very unhappy man after Leinster's defeat to Munster on Saturday night. Brandishing of four yellow cards to Munster players wasn't enough to spare the referee from the lash of his tongue, but the critique took a strange turn post-match, as reported by Rory O'Connor in the Irish Independent today. It's very hard, the TMO and everything that goes with the modern game, says uh, O'Connor, in relation to the refereeing of the breakdown. And a load of soccer moms at home watching it makes it very, very hard to deal with the legal play at the breakdown. <laughs> mm. I don't know where he's... Where's he going with that? I don't know. I mean, does he literally mean soccer moms? Or does is it a kind of derogatory way? Oh, as in the, the modern rugby fan... Prissy rugby right. fans at home. Mm. Probably, probably that's who haven't played the game the highest level. Ah, Ken, you know, the time was, you know, a man could... Honourably rake his honourable stud down the back of a, another honourable man's back. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. that's it's called self-policing, Ken. But uh, yeah. the, all order has got out of the game. You know, just all a, a thumb into the eye socket would would solve a lot of problems. I mean, if you think about it, it's really ninety-seven percent of the eyes in the opposing team are still intact. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's one eyeball. It's an acceptable level of attrition. 30 eyeballs, only one viciously, honourably assaulted. Popped in the socket. <laughs> well, it's funny, because I know you felt that there may not have been enough fight from Leinster, not enough fire in the belly. And mm. I'm sure everyone from Munster is pretty happy about the result and the manner of the performance over the weekend. I'm going to be talking to Dennis Hickey and Jerry Thorney very shortly uh, about that. But there was no, there was nothing coming back from Leinster, really. There was mm. no Johnny Sexton roaring at Ron O'Gara, no Felipe Contepomi aiming a fairly, I would say, lackluster punch at Dunico Callahan. Mm. No, none of that kind of stuff. I mean, you're, you're using the word fight there as kind of a, you know, a catch-all term. What I'm talking about is a specific fight uh, which was missing from the Leinster Monster game. Go on. No actual fight. Uh, oh, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I mean, what, what we're talking about here is some, uh, you know, reasonably acceptable level of brutality. Two teammates at international level punching each other in the face gouging each other's eyes out, stepping on each other. Um, You're thinking about something along the lines of, say, Leo Cullen. Yeah, I mean... Uh, recklessly, um, you know... Eyeballing. Ha- ha- eyeballing Alan Quinlan's finger. Yeah. It, 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 an unacceptable assault on Alan Quinlan's digits. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there just didn't appear to be a whole lot of that. Where, and, uh, yeah. you know, I've, I, for one, am sad to see the demise of that kind of honour in the game of rugby. No soccer mom is Kieran Murphy. Anyway, we're going to talk to Ushi McConville about the legacy of Jim McGuinness as Donegal manager uh, a little bit later on. Murph, I, I'm going to ask him whether he, he's good for the sport, has been good for the sport. He's been definitely been very good for Donegal and as Keith Duggan writes about in the newspaper this morning, it's not just about the results, it's also about the sense of confidence and the sense of belief and everything that, that went for Donegal people. He, yeah. he brought a huge amount there. It's probably hard for anyone outside the county really to get a, a grip on that, but you can only imagine mm. how much joy he has brought the last few years. What I want to talk about more though Donegal is... Donegal voted yes to Jim McGuinness in a way that other parts of the country just couldn't quite understand. 
Go on. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, what I would say is... Good for the game? Good for the game, yes. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. Absolutely brilliant for the game, I think. Uh, bad for other managers, though, I think. Because he has, you know, forced their hand a bit. And he also has, to be honest, shown that play, having a set group of players uh, doesn't... It, the, the group of players that you have, the players that are in your dressing room, don't define the parameters of what you can achieve. That if you're a good enough manager, you can transform a group of players into nearly anything. And I think that there are... Now, I'm not saying that, you know, Longford can win the All-Ireland. Longford's probably a bad... Uh, Carlo can win the All-Ireland. Mm. But what I am saying is there's a rump of maybe 16 teams in Ireland that if they had Jim McGuinness in charge, could do unimaginable things. Would they and need... I think that's, like, that's an amazing thing. Would it have to be... Well, that's like Longford. Yeah. I'm going to put Longford... Are they in your 16 teams? Longford aren't far away from my 16 teams. <laughs> right, okay. I'm going to say give me, give, give, me somebody, give me somebody around 10th or 11th on that list. Uh, Galway. Galway, okay. Would Galway <laughs> need... into my head there. Would Galway need uh, a Galwegian version of Jim McGuinness? Or would the actual Jim McGuinness be okay? Was there something specific to the Donegal psyche that... McGuinness was able to exploit, was able to build on. Yeah, like, could he do it in another county? Could he I, in another I, county? Think, I think, provided Jim McGuinness is as committed to Galway as he was to Donegal, no that's kind of his personal opinion. Like, if he comes to, if he came to Galway or if he came to Mead uh, with the drive that he went to Donegal, I think they could both win all Irons. Yeah. And I mean, I'd, I'd like, and that's, take the top eight, take the eight teams in Division One, 100%. Look down through the teams in Division 2, Armagh. Oh, Armagh got relegated, didn't they? I mean, Galway, Meads, Leash, these are all teams that I think could probably win Ireland. Just one other thing you said, uh, he forced other managers' hands, what do you mean? I mean, it, it, in that if you, ta- if, if you take over Leash or if you take over Galway, there's a, sta- there's a standard that you might think is acceptable for you to reach. Oh, right, so he's yeah. made them look bad by comparison. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's, that's 100%. Oh, yeah. you know, that's, that's his job, just doing his job. Uh, by the way, to our celebrity Carlo listeners, that's you, Sean O'Brien, and you, Catherine Thomas. I apologise on Merce's behalf for yet again slamming your beautiful county. I was about to give it a nickname, couldn't think of Carlo's nickname. Mm. Oh, uh, the, li- the slightly <laughs> bigger than the littlest county. Simon tells me it's the Oakleaf County, is it? No, it's not. That's no. Derry. <laughs> that's Derry. That's Simon Lanamy in trouble again. Anchorman style. Yeah. Uh, Gar- Garden County no, no no that wouldn't be it either alright we are now joined in studio by Dennis Hickey and Irish Times rugby correspondent Jerry Thorny that's good to see you good to see you can I ask you Jerry first of all did you get a sense from Anthony Foley that this was a big weight off his shoulders on Saturday night yeah um, loath though he was to admit it and um, it's all about the next game against the Scarlets and this was just one win and they won nothing yet he seemed in very good spirits the, the, the chippiest he's been all season for sure but having said that, he's carried himself very well throughout the difficulties they've had. And after two defeats and um, at press conferences, and he's been very forthcoming and erudite in his answers, very thoughtful, very considered and good-humoured. Um, not taciturn at all after defeat or anything like it. Um, and genu- genuinely trying to analyse them honestly in public. And he maintained the mantra, particularly after the last game, that they weren't that far away, that a few key moments and a few decisions kept going against them. They weren't that far away. And if you looked at the video again, actually, there was some validity to what he was saying, particularly um, the last game against the Ospreys when they were down Ospreys territory and and something would invariably go wrong. And they probably got a few dodgy calls and scrums and so forth. And their exit strategy didn't work. But you sense there was a big performance coming. And it was no doubt the side of Leinster and the shame of losing two games in Thumb Park sparked it. But they got a bang on right and they were very hard to stop. And for that first 50 or 60 minutes, that was as good as they played since the quarterfinal, semi-final of the Heineken Cup last year. You reported an interesting uh, quote from Foley after. He says, at times we're easy targets in terms of the coaching team because we're local and mm. people know what we're mm. about. They know our wrinkles, our good sides as well. I was slightly surprised by that because I thought Rob Penny got a hard time at times because he he wasn't buying into the whole local side of things enough. He wasn't buying into the Munster tradition and all those things. Were you struck by what Foley said there? Yeah, because you see, it would be it would be different for a local coach, an indigenous coach, because they are so well known. And he, I think it's a little bit like Eric Elwood and Connacht. And remember, Eric had to eventually walk away from that job because such was the intensity of it, the sense of responsibility 
when you're an indigenous homegrown coach of your own province is possibly a little bit more acute. There is no sense of escape from it. Whereas if you're an outsider as such, quote unquote, you know, you come from a foreign country, maybe there is more sense of escapism after a defeat when you retreat to the bosom of your family or whatever. For somebody like Foley and, and local coaches like Squeaky Walsh and Jerry Flannery and Mick O'Driscoll and Ian Costo, they, they come from those these places, they know all the local people, they're for, they're for, every time they go to the shops or walk down the street, they're recognised and they probably feel that sense of it. But it might be more sense of him feeling it than the actual reality of it. But yeah, it, it is slightly different, I think, for a homegrown coach. Dennis, what do you think? Is there an extra pressure there? I don't know because I'm not a coach. Um, and, uh, you know, only if you're in that position, I think you understand what types of pressure. But I'm, I suppose from the outside, I, I don't really think so because I think most people want the homegrown coaches to do really well. Um, so there's a pressure, obviously, to succeed. There's a pressure for every coach, but I would say... There's also a lot of support. Yeah, it's a huge amount of support. Haven't yeah. um, been getting it through the turnstiles though this season, have they? Well, that's, you know, that's... They might have added to the pressure on them. Well, absolutely, yeah, but that's, you know, I think overall there's, there's a, you know, going into the season, I don't think there's ever been as much goodwill for a monster coach as there has been for the, the, mm. that coaching ticket. Now, you know, it's, it's no coach or coaching team is, is, is immune from, from the... Uh, rigor, I suppose, or the criticisms of the of the support, and maybe the point he's making is that that can be, you know, it can be heavier if you're from, you know, if if you're a local coaching ticket. But I think overall, the support and the leeway being given is pretty pretty good. Yeah, I think maybe that's what it seems from the outside. Sorry, that's all I can say. Yeah, and as you say, it's hard, unless you're Anthony Foley, you don't really know these things. I don't think he's making a massive deal about it either. No. I am just yeah. picking out yeah. one of the quotes. You're one making of the more, a big deal. One of the juicier <laughs> quotes here. Yeah, pouncing on a tabloid style here. But was it the, in terms of the game plan? Was it was that the Rob Penny game plan completely thrown out and a brand new blueprint emerging from Foley? Um, I'm not sure because I think at, at times Munster have played like that in recent years, but I, I think it was very singular and direct in the approach. You know, I, I kind of looked at the game. I was sat down to watch the game and I looked at both sides and, um, you know, instinctively, you know, the, the first thing that came to mind, I thought it was probably the two weaker sides um, from both teams probably in the last five or six years playing each other, certainly from a, ta- from a, from a cutting edge perspective. Um, and I know some of those changes were, were enforced, like uh, through injuries. Both teams have a lot of injuries, and some like right up to kickoff for injuries. But if you look at the, you know, if you look at those teams relative to the teams even to three or four years ago, I thought it was probably among the weakest it's been, certainly from from a, from a cutting edge point of view. Now, from Munster's tactical perspective, they got it completely right, um, and you know, Leinster would be very disappointed they had no answer to what, you know, what was a very direct and simple but a very effective way of playing. I'd be worried, though, for both sides as a result of, of you know, the team that won played in a way that I'm not sure. So from, from Munster, Munster perspective, I'm not sure that can be effective at the business end of the Heineken Cup. Uh, I'm not, I know that's not where the teams are now. You know, it was very mm. important in the progression for, for Munster that they put that... Uh, those sort of tactics in play and it worked for them, you know, because that's a progression of where they were from the previous weeks. And if they can build on that, if they have that as their minimum and they can develop their style, they'll be better and better. But, you know, on the flip side, from Leinster's perspective, you know, if you can't stop that uh, at this stage of the season, which is a very direct, very simple plan, again, you'd be very worried about what it's going to be like at the business end of the season. Now, like, if you looked at the way Munster played, will that work against Toulon? or Claremont, or any of the really big sides. Probably not, because Leinster were so ineffective and so standoffish around the fringes. Like, the French teams are not, and that's the game that's played every week in, week out. So, therefore, if that's stopped, what's the plan B for Munster? I didn't see a huge amount of plan B. Jerry? From, sorry, just on that. Oh, yeah. From a Leinster perspective, is that if you can't stop Munster doing that, um, you've no chance of stopping the likes of Toulon and Claremont and all these big French sides who do that, again, week in, week out, with bigger guys with stronger guys and more effective guys. So from both teams' perspectives, you know, that's, that was the winning strategy. And, you know, there wasn't a huge amount in either team's performance. I mean, we say that's, 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 uh, that's good news for both uh, teams because I don't really think it is in, in the longer term. You know? Jerry, just on Munster? Well, on Munster first, yeah. There, it's always been the case that for them to score tries is harder work than it is for most other sides. Um, 
you know, generally go through phases, pin his side down. They don't tend to strike from long distance. They haven't had finishes of the quality of, say, Dennis here like that. For Simon Zebo's given them a cutting edge they probably haven't had in the past. But generally it's harder work and it's, it could be even harder work again for them this season because they don't have that creative force in the middle of the pitch that Casey Lalala was. I mean, he wasn't always on the same wavelength as his teammates, but he had fantastic footwork and he looked to make an offload, perhaps too much so, but it meant that he could open up defences if people read his, his, his instincts and what he was intending to do. There isn't that creative force in the middle of the pitch for them at the moment, and it is hard work from to score tries. And yeah, I agree with Dennis. The, the defending from Leinster around the fringes was a huge source of disappointment to Matt O'Connor afterwards. Their breakdown efficiency was poor too. I think that was a key as well in the game that. Munster, perhaps because they were setting targets closer to the ruck, they were able to swarm through the rucks and, and recycle the ball that bit quicker. But even then, you could see Leinster, they were underpowered going into the rucks. That was a strange, I'd like to see them much more intensely going to the ruck, like they showed against the Scarlets. I think at one point, Rob Carney got done for holding on against 13 men. I mean, it was like they didn't, they can moan all they want about the referee, but they didn't seem to commit accurately enough at the breakdown in enough numbers and a lot of their problems emanated from that. I still think that they have a little bit more of a cutting edge when they're at full tilt, but Dennis right with the injury profile that both sides have at the moment, they are seriously depowered and they will struggle to open up quality sides and, and Munster particularly have a brutally tough draw, there's no doubt about it. Whether those tactics work at home to Saracens and Claremont is a valid point. Yeah, I'll get back on to Leinster, but just the Munster point is interesting because I would have thought their supporters are feeling pretty good about themselves after the weekend, but both of you guys seem to think that they'll need to offer quite a bit more through the season. Well, I think Munster supporters will be very happy and the, and the coaching staff will be happy because for, for both those groups that's, it is a significant step up in the way they've been playing their execution in that area was fantastic it's not there it's no truck from them if if, if, Munster, if Leinster can't deal with it that's a Leinster issue but Munster were very efficient around that when they got that going it was really kind of a very old you know I hadn't seen that sort of level of kind of level of ferocity and effectiveness in that area you know and precision they were very you know they didn't knock on ball when they got close to the line they they, they really held their shape and Leinster kind of crumbled I don't think Ian um, Keekley attacked the game line much better than he had been doing as well helped by the fact he was getting front foot ball oh, you know, yeah, he, no, uh, maybe that time he put Hurley through the inside gap and so forth yeah, he was really going up to the game line much better than he had been in previous uh, games no I would say that I, I was really just thinking really about the close in stuff I think that's a, that's the bit that Munster be really really happy with they'll be happy then with all the other stuff as well as say Keekley playing off it um, but for from Munster perspective, I think they will be happy. The supporters will be very happy with the result and with the progress on previous weeks. I think, but putting that aside, what the plan B for both sides is, if you look at the, the players that were there, as I said, outside of the playmakers, the, the, the lack of cutting edge from 12 back, you know, you, you'd probably say Munster have a, a proper game breaker there in Simon Zebo. And for Leinster, the equivalent from the starting team was probably Ian Madigan. Ian Madigan. They were the two yeah. game breakers in the side. But apart from that, the lack of invention, the lack of creativity from both sides with the ball was, you know, it was really, really obviously, you know, deficient compared to where, where you, I would expect both teams to be at this time of the year and what they'll need to be for the, for the, when they get into the Heineken Cup. Because that, you know, that, as effective as that was that weekend, as effective as it needed to be, Munster will need more and Leicester will certainly need a lot more because they weren't, you know, they didn't even have the, 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 the efficiency of the pick and go that Munster had. They had uh, and they had probably as, as, as little cutting edge. Yeah, Matt O'Connor seemed prepared to have a, a bit of a go with the ref's decisions afterwards, Jerry. but uh, maybe he's saying different things in private. I'm sure he'll be fairly ruthless in how they, the coaching team look at that performance because as Dennis says there, there was nothing really from them. It was surprising. There was no depth either. It wasn't like you were looking at the bench and thinking there were a few guys who could come on here and turn things around for them. No, well, they're missing Luke Fitzgerald and they're missing Zane Kirshner. These are two X-Factor players. Saying, and Rob they, Carney. Didn't and Rob know, Carney from the start. Starting, so, like, put those three in a back line and you're mm. talking an altogether more... Absolutely. ...sharper-edged back line. And, and Kirshner hopefully will be back for Europe anyway. And the word was that Carney was never going to start all day long. I don't know what that was about, That the way they ran in pre-match and the warm-up. The word was out long before kick-off, even the day before, I believe. Munster were fully au fait with the fact that Jack McGrath was not starting and Ian Madigan was going to be at full-back and Brendan Mack was going to be outside centre. So it'd be interesting to see how that one evolves and whether Lentz come clean or whether the Pro 12 organisers actually have a little bit of an inquiry into that one because it looked like they were playing silly buggers and that was, that Rob Carney was never actually going to start for it's some the reason. Old, it's, it's what they do in GAA matches pretty much every, uh, every yeah. week. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, fair enough. Okay, they, it tend, tends not to be done in rugby and I wouldn't like to see it becoming common practice right, but then yeah. we just don't believe team sheets when they're announced from Leinster the day before games. But leaving all that um, silly burgers aside, um, yeah, I mean, the, Leinster will, I think, 
if you look at their back play in the second half, it got a little bit better, Dennis, and the Jimmy mm. Goppard himself was making some good clean breaks and there's a better balance to it, I think, mm. when Madigan is in the middle. And I think Gordon Darcy's been running quite well at 13. Actually, and since the end of last season, when he's been moved there, he seems to be really reveling that extra little bit of space when he's on the ball and attack, at least. Well, you know, he was playing 12 at the, at the, uh, at the weekend. And I, I'm thinking more, uh, I suppose I'm thinking more invention. I'm not saying, you know, how they've been playing last match. Or mm. I'm just talking for that match in particular, because mm. that's a step-up game from the previous matches. Um, and, you know, there's, there's been, you know, the hallmark of, the la- of Leinster in the last four to five years has been their invention with the ball. Um, their ability to play plays on the on the hoof, uh, switches, wraparounds, um, elaborate moves actually off very, you know, second or third phase, in other words, to get organised and have the position to do that. And, you know, that, that, that there was very little of that on, uh, on show at the weekend. Um, and, you know, from a Leinster perspective, that's worrying. I'd also worry, I suppose, from a Leinster perspective is that there's two games you know, people going into the game saying Munster were really on the back foot, Leinster were strong favourites, or, you know, or favourites. Mm-hmm. Um, but from from a Leinster point of view, the two games, you know, let's look who they've played. You know, Scarlets, Clanetli, you know, Scarlets haven't beaten Leinster in, or haven't performed in, and Cardiff is the same since, I don't know, Devil Arrow was in, in, in charge. You know, they never, they never play well in Dublin. So beating them by 30 or 40 points is not a really good barometer of where Leinster are. More worrying for Leinster is that when the, the teams that have really put it up to them in a while are capable of putting up Glasgow, Munster, they've come up short. Uh, now, Leinster have been in a better position because they've, they've, they've lost narrowly and they've got bonus points. But it's very worrying for them uh, to have to play those, for the team that they play, that have, have the guys they really need to be beating, they've kind of fallen short. Uh, now, Munster have their own worries in that regard. You know, they lost twice at home. They'll be a bit buoyed by this, the team they haven't beaten in, in a while in Dublin. But I think for both the sides going into this game, I was far less, I thought it was a lot more equal than people thought. Was there a lot, a lot of worry um, going into the next weekend? Was there a lack of fire from Leinster? Did, they, did these players forget that they're supposed to hate Munster? Is that gone now? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure there was, uh, I, I don't really think there was a lack of, of hatred or, you know, I think it's that's far too, I think that's a bit simplistic. I think supporters have that, uh, I think the, the players are always fired up to play against each other. Munster were probably uh, a little bit more scared going into the game because they had just, they had really had to win the game. Leicester maybe had a little bit more form the playing home. They could be a little bit more comfortable going into the fixture. They've won the last six. Um, but I think that, uh, um, I, I, I don't think it was a lack of... I just think it was a lack of, you know... I think a huge amount of Leinster's problems start from their defensive line was much slower than it's been. Like, it's been really good under Matt O'Connor all year this year. Even the games that they've lost, their defence has been excellent. But they've, you know, they stood off, they stood off mm-hmm. uh, the phases, they didn't come forward. Um, you know, they didn't come forward around the fringes. They were just a yard off where they needed to be around the fringes for the intensity of the game. And that hopefully will stand them instead next week. But, you know, I'm not even thinking really about, but I am, you know, Leinster will be thinking about the, 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 the early stages of the, of, of the new European competition next week. I'm thinking more about the business end of the competition where mm-hmm. these teams will be against teams that will be, you know, they have so much more to, to, to attack them with. Now, both Leinster and Munster be better by then. But, you know, that's where they've got to be thinking of where they need to be, you know. Yeah, just that point about the the occasion and that that kind of mutual antipathy, if not hatred. I just kind of, if you looked at the, the the two starting teams, there wasn't that stock of nine or ten players on each team that had played in this fixture like twenty times. Mm. And I just felt that that did kind of take away a little bit from you know the Quinlan Flannery. Anthony Foley when he was playing against sort of your era of player, I, I, it did kind of seem like it like a different occasion. And you know the Aviva, where they said forty three, it didn't look like forty three thousand no, in the, in the no, Aviva. No. It just kind of seemed like it was a different. It, a, different the whole, a little bit of the heat has gone out of the fixture for yeah. sure, and that that's off the pitch as well as on it. And you're right, the ticket sales weren't as strong as they had been for the last four runnings of this fixture in the Aviva. I don't know if there's a post Brian or just got Hanover out there, but it just it didn't seem the same sense of intensity in the build up to it, even among supporters and cue the match itself you're right perhaps in that there isn't that same level I think it's something to do with the fact they don't meet as much as they had been doing if you look back at 06, 07, 08, 09, 010 those years they met in two Heineken Cup semi-finals a league final and a league semi-final in latter years they haven't met in the latter stages of anything and they've only just met the two regular season meetings I think that's to extract a little bit of the sting out of the fixture as well yeah, and they were all the, the same players throughout yeah. all of those games yeah. between 06 yeah. and 2010 <clears throat> I, think, I think if there was 
I think Jen's point is valid though in the sense that I think Munster desperately wanted to win this game. And for that reason, though it might sound trite to say it, and it often does, the team that wanted it more did get it and won it. And because they, it, they looked like they wanted more. And I do think there's a little bit of that intensity you talk about around the fringes came from that desire. You know, and, and Munster sensed a weakness and like good Munster sides of yore, if they sense a weakness, they, they flooded that area and they went after it. And that was good game management yeah. and, and, they, and they managed the game very well. It, it's remarkable to think that early in the second half, they were within a whisker three times in one move mm. of getting a bonus point and going 36-8 up. Yeah. Absolutely. 36-9 yeah. up. I mean, they, it was quite a stuffing for the first 50, 60 minutes. Absolutely. But, uh, but Leinster haven't been... Any, in any way vulnerable in that area in no. the last five years. No. You know, they've actually dominated that. Like every time Leinster have beaten Munster in the last five years, you know, I've heard Biramani or Paul O'Connell saying they were better at the breakdown. They, mm. they dominated the breakdown. Mm. They beaten at the breakdown. They were hungrier at the breakdown. You know, that's where, you know, they've always been able to crystallise it in a very clear review of that exchange. Um, so, like, Leinster haven't been for the taking in that area. And that was the first time in five years I thought they were just blown away there you mm. know and that's the worrying part for how worried for, are you I mean, do you think are you, have you got any confidence that the current Leinster team with the current management can up it to the levels required for the Heineken Cup or, I well, do like I do because, the Heineken Cup. because yeah because they have enough guys in there to realise what the difference is now the the the, the no key and Healy Sean O'Brien that's a big issue that's, that's a big, big thing and carriers it, and by the way I must say it's a bigger it's a bigger issue for Joe Schmidt, Schmidt. Yeah. like it's a, that a whole mm. area is a bigger mm. uh, uh, for Joe Schmidt it's a big issue for Leinster. I think Leinster would be better come the, come the next round, you know, come the first round of Europe. But for Joe Schmidt now worrying, you know, I watched himself and Simon Easterby. I watched South Africa and New Zealand in the afternoon in Ellis Park, mm-hmm. who said, you know, South Africa and Ireland are going to be playing. And South Africa, you know, they're just, New Zealand beasted each other for, mm. like it, it was, it was a, a, if you want an idea, know why players aren't playing 10 years anymore, like have a look mm. at that game the ferocity the size of the guys the power and if you're Joe Schmidt you're saying you know the team that won that game at the weekend was Munster picking and jamming around you know that's what won it for them right now all the top players or probably two thirds of the forward pack or at least probably even more were playing in that game mm. are going to be the guys who play in that game Take you know, save for maybe Chris Henry or you know two or three of the Ulster guys who might be in the, in the mix but that tactic won't work against because the players Ireland will be playing have are just not big enough. Um, they don't have Sean O'Brien. They won't have Keane Healy. Um, they have a serious lack of uh, you know um, you know guys like Steve Ferris are, are gone. All these so all these big ball carriers that you need to have to have that effectiveness against big teams like South Africa are not there. So if that's if that's you know if you're hoping to to, to have the same result with that's those sort of tactics against South Africa, it's not going to work. So you're going to have to have a lot more invention which Joe Schmidt should be capable of, of producing. But I'd be worried about Ireland from a forwards perspective who the ball carriers are. Mm-hmm. Like, it's going to be... It's a Reece big, Waddle big could, issue. Yeah, right. It's a big issue. Mm-hmm. We'll get on to that chat in more detail mm-hmm. in a few weeks, I'm sure. Listen, that's, that's great. Jerry. Dennis, thanks a million. Cheers, thank you. I knew the place. Clough, as he calls me, Rabbi, didn't know them. He said to me, what can you do that the boss hasn't done? You, the boss... And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. But there's no way to win it better. Why not? Only, no, 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 no. But that's the only hope I've got. We're doing, we're doing lots of four matches. Then, but that, well, I can only look straight. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. Clough, as he calls me, Revy. Good luck. Now, that, may, that might be, you know, aiming for utopia, and it might, be, might mean being a little bit stupid. But that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. Yeah, I'm uh, starting to dread that November International against South Africa. Yeah. Damn, Dennis, for bringing it up. The amount of headspace that is going to be used up by Joe Schmidt in trying to, in trying to compensate for the disparity in physical strength between these teams is incredible. As as he, he made the point, we don't have the ball carriers that we did even. So mm. whatever chance we had of taking them on that way is is not really there. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's like uh, it's like judo. Owen. You know, the bigger your opponent, the more you can use his size against him. I don't think rugby usually no, works like no, that. And not. the more he can use his size <laughs> against you. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. I mean, if we're going to be all negative about it. Yeah. I mean, we should pick the 15 smallest rugby players we have. What would South Africa think? You know, if we came out with a team of tiny, tiny players. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, they, they would have to think that Schmidt has got something extraordinary up his sleeve. I mean, what is this? I mean, it's scrum time. You'd have like nine, uh, eight players all under five foot seven. Yeah, it'll be amazing. No, you have, you, you see, who'd be their biggest scrummager maybe? I'm trying to think of it. Bismarck Duplessis. Somebody along, or Bismarck Duplessis. There he is. Yeah. Crouching down. Ready to eyeball some reasonably big Irish. Yeah. From Ray Darcy. Ray Darcy. We're playing Ray Darcy in the front row against oh, South, no, I, South Africa. I assume that we were still picking rugby players, but we were well, just okay, going to mix no, up. Okay, as, so, well, so, he's from Kildare. I'm sure he's played a bit. So staring back at Bismarck is yeah. Owen Redden, say, yeah, in the front yeah, row, yeah, with, with Isaac Boss to provide a bit of balance. I mean, he's slightly bigger guy than Redden. Yeah, yeah. And so Paul Marshall. Bit, and Paul Marshall. You get those three in there and yeah. work your way back. I mean, what, Bismarck's going to ask a lot of questions here. I mean, what's going on? What is he doing, you know? Um, so, I mean, you know, the other things, you know, you could, like, you know, lather them up in, uh, you know, baby oil or something, you know, make them really slippery. I mean, listen, it's, there's more than one way to skid a cat, is what I'm saying. Coming up in the Irish Times, second Captain's Football Podcast. That's, yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What did you want? I'd say it to your face, I'll say it to you now. I'll down Twanfield and we'll see them. What you're doing down here, you're Johnny man. Uh, well, we, we'll talk a little bit about um, fighting Arsene Wenger and his, uh, you know, the brave, the plucky performance by Arsenal yesterday at Stamford Bridge. Uh, Wenger leading by example with a little tussle on the sideline with Jose Mourinho, but unfortunately the same result as... Arsenal play like never, but they lost like always. And uh, we'll talk about that. We'll talk also about the uh, um, on a, on a slightly different theme from the from the weekend, just the uh, Russia 2018. Um, things may be cooling down a little bit on the whole front of Russia should be stripped of the World Cup or we should boycott the World Cup. Um, uh, another argument that I've seen uh, in recent weeks is that, what are you talking about? If you really want to punish the Russian regime, make them host the World Cup, you have no idea how much this thing is going to cost. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, how much it's going to cost, I suppose. I wonder, does Arsene Wenger wake up on the morning of a game against Chelsea angry? Does he get up to, is the first thought in his head, oh, this little sh- yeah. I don't know. I mean, does, you know, I'd say you couldn't but wake up with a feeling of kind of queasy dread. Uh, because you know what's probably going to happen. Arsene Wenger probably is a, is a positive thinker, but again, but also yeah. a realist. I don't know if he practices um, some kind of meditation or mindfulness. You know, he can be in the moment. He doesn't have to be thinking about that moment when Jose Mourinho will make a smug face and swagger away down the tunnel, uh, ostentatiously, you know, not shaking his hand. Not that he wants to shake his hand anyway, but making a big point out of this, you know, with his, uh, with his clean sheet and his several goals. Uh, and Wenger has to go in and answer all the same questions. Maybe he doesn't have to think about that in advance of the moment. It's possible that he can, for instance, just sit there eating his porridge, mm. just savouring the taste of the of the oatmeal. Mm. Uh, you know, maybe he can get into his car, listen to some uh, maybe some classical music on the way over to uh, you know to where where they're going to meet up to to get over, on the way over to Chelsea. And he doesn't have to think about what's coming up in advance. Well, he's a serious live in the moment man. Yeah, that's what I... Well, I hope that he is. Yeah. Because otherwise... He's thinking about... Marino Sunday right morning now, was yeah. hell. And, <laughs> and then Monday morning Monday, isn't, uh, isn't much better. Isn't much better. I wouldn't have thought. Oshin yeah. uh, McConville has joined us in studio to talk Jim McGuinness. Oshin, how are you? Well, good to see you. Congrats, first of all, on the Cross McLean victory at the weekend. There's another county final before we talk about McGuinness. Yeah, thanks very much. <clears throat> it was a good game. It was a game that we really, really needed. Well, it was a game. <laughs> I think that, that's the best. All best. of the opponents were wearing regulation <laughs> shorts and yeah. boots and not jeans. Yeah, as happened so yeah, so it was a good, it was a good game for us. Uh, <clears throat> it was pretty tight second half, and we pulled away towards the end of the game, won by six points. So that's good for us. Back in the county final, um, play a county final in two weeks. So we've got a walk to do, but it's great to be back there. Talk to us about Jim McGuinness, the legacy. It, we, a simple question: Has he been good or bad for Gaelic football in the last four years? Well, can I can I rewind back to the first time uh, that I really took notice of, of McGuinness' style of play? Was they played Antrim in two thousand and his first year two thousand and ten? I think it was um, up in Ballywell Fair. Two thousand eleven, yeah. Two thousand eleven, sorry. Yep. And they played ultra defensive football. Okay, and. Uh, I happened to be very close. I was walking at the game. I happened to be very close to the sideline, and uh, the derision from the supporters 
Donegal Antrim were atrocious and Donegal were marginally better uh, it was a style of football that we hadn't seen before so you sort of uh, first of all you're trying to get your head around what exactly they're trying to do the first thing you think is the first thing I thought about it was that he has absolutely no faith in his defence uh, he's no faith in his full back line and that's why he has to bring all these players back at that stage, you never would have seen it develop into what it developed into. Uh, as I said, the derision from the from the Donegal supporters was, you know, I'm not staying around to watch this. A lot of people left at half time, and and the abuse he took after in the aftermath of that game. Uh, specifically, if you remember, it was the only game I think in the championship in all of the provinces, uh, and it took a serious. Whipping on uh, on the Sunday game, yeah, and, there ended up being a, re- a lot more analysis of that game than there would normally be in the Sunday yeah. game. Mm. Yeah, and uh, from that point, he took a hell of a lot of abuse over the next couple of weeks. But I think one thing we learned fairly early on with McGuinness was that he wasn't for wavering; that he believed in what he was trying to do, and uh, he was going to stick to it, regardless who was playing Antrim or who was playing Dublin. And uh, that was the start of it. And little did we know that it would progress into what it progressed into. Now it was a it was very much um, work in progress in the first year, um, but he developed it and he found a winning formula. Has he been good for Gaelic football? I think he has because I think he's what he's done is from a coaching perspective he's got people to think about it a lot more. He's got uh, other coaches to think about how they're going to break down that system. He's got. Um, He's obviously got a huge amount of success out of it. We're talking really about a, a and I know a few of the Donegal's Donegal boys have mentioned over the last uh, couple of days since McGuinness has gone that Anthony Malloy would. Or Anthony Malloy mentioned at one stage that God God himself wouldn't uh, be able to win anything with this group of Donegal players. They were known as party animals, and like we would have played them as late as oh seven oh eight. Um, I think they played in Armagh in 2010. Sorry, that was that was the game they were beaten by uh, 13 points. <coughs> um, they were the old traditional stick the jeans and the nice t-shirt in the in the bag because we were going out straight after the game. That sort of thing. Stay in Dublin after after the big matches. That's what they were known as, you know. And whether a lot of that was, you know, you know, just by their reputation, or whether that, a lot of that was actual factual, you know, we don't really know, but. They certainly had that name, and from beginning to turn that around and turn the mindset around. We're supposed to go back to, uh, you know, has he been good for the game? Yeah, I, I believe he has. I think he's been good for the game at the top level. The only thing I would say is that there is a lot of junior, intermediate, uh, senior teams out there who are trying to implement the system but aren't implementing it in the way that Jim McGuinness implemented it, and it makes for for day of view, to be honest. Yeah, I think people, uh, I think it's. Generally, except now, when to, to, that the best way to beat Jim McGuinness's model is to maybe play a similar model. Yeah. Certainly, that's um, the way that the, the where Dublin fell down. So, I guess you could argue that's probably bad for football if both teams play in that way. But then again, if, you, if you're trying to win a Lions for your team, and I think what Ushin said was interesting there, just he's got people thinking about it. Yeah, because you you can plod along in any sport and just do what, what what's always been done and. In the case of Donegal, you might pick up an Ulster, maybe, but yeah. we're not even close to that at that stage. But actually, there's no harm everyone maybe refreshing themselves and thinking about Comple- how the game can be played. Completely. What he's done is he's raised the bar and he's... he's sh- All of the counties now, instead of saying it's always going to be the way it always was, the big teams are going to be good and we're just going to be scratching around at the bottom. What he did was, it couldn't have been a more... It, it, was, it was nearly like a Petri dish experiment of right take the team least likely to become this unbelievably this this dour mechanical uh coached within an inch of its life team and take it to an iron final what's from what position like the what team is least likely to do that and you nearly would have said in 2010 Donegal and for me what you're talking about with McGuinness is one of the all-time great coaching achievements as far as I'd be concerned I mean I, I think the best yeah like <clears throat> I, I, to put it into some sort of context I remember having a conversation with a Liverpool fan of my acquaintance last year last April when Liverpool were on the verge of winning the league and they said if Rodgers wins 
the Premier League with this team, the only thing that I can think would be better than it was Jim McGuinness winning the All Ireland with Donegal. Because what he did in it wasn't over the course of five years no. to change the culture and get them to an All Ireland final. It was one year of ironing over or of, of ironing out the, the kinks in the system and winning an Ulster title while he was doing it. And a second year of winning an All Ireland and not just winning an All Ireland, actually. I saw a lot of those games. Dominantly yeah. like the best team in the country for and there are millions of ways to win in Ireland. You know, you can time your run as Kerry have done over the years. You can have a horrible defeat at the start and build your way back up. Donegal from May to September were the best team in the country yeah. in 2012 and by a distance. That's the best coaching performance you've ever seen, you said? The best coaching performance I've ever seen within the GA, without a shadow of a doubt. Because, as I say, he had to change a mindset, okay? And then he has to get people to believe in something which has never been done before within the GA. Uh, when you consider that the, the tactical, uh, the tactical sway that he put on things, uh, to try and get players to buy into sacrificing their game, to try and get a Michael Murphy to sacrifice, you know, his game uh, for the good of the team, and that's the that's his greatest trick. That's his great his greatest trick was to get all those players, regardless of what he asked them. And they would do it. That's funny. I remember reading the Michael Murphy dynamic is huge. Really, he's the guy. And even when others have fallen down a bit this year, like McFadden didn't put in a great year, you still have Murphy there playing brilliantly in pretty much every game. Uh, he, he was speaking before, it could have been before the semi final this year, maybe before, uh, before the final. And he was making the point that, look, uh, the article was really profiling Murphy and saying that when McGuinness came along, Murphy was. The perf- at a perfect stage of his career and had the perfect mentality for it was it was almost like he was waiting for someone like McGuinness. He he already thought quite a lot tactically yeah. about the game, and Murphy was the way he was talking. It's not actually a sacrifice for him to go out the field yeah. because he said that he wanted to find ways to impact the game besides just scoring, which he had done from a young age. It's, it's an interesting marriage that those two. Have. It is an interesting marriage, and I had watched uh, Murphy even playing under. He, they played an under twenty one semi final in Parnell Park uh, a number of years ago and they positioned him at full forward. And he got about four balls, and the rest of the time he was completely out of the game. You know what I mean? McGuinness comes in, uh, Murphy does start at full forward, um, he started full forward in the Antrim game, but wasn't getting a lot of uh, possession in the full forward line. Brings him out into the middle of the field, and you're thinking, well, this is just he's just, he's just cutting his cloth for this particular game. But in actual fact, what he was doing was, he was moulding Murphy into somebody who could play absolutely anywhere and was happy to play anywhere, but not only happy to play anywhere, was you say, to go and have an effect on the game. You know, to not be that full forward. Like, I played corner forward for the vast majority of, of my career, and a lot of time you're standing there, and you're really at the mercy of the midfielders getting the ball into you. Because yeah. if it doesn't come in, you really... You, you, there's not Obviously, there's not a big pile you can do about it, except for go and hunt the ball down or go and get on the ball and do something simple. And I think that's what Murphy has always done. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's prospered on the McGuinness is that he's never out of the game for long, long periods. That he's always able to go wherever he needs to go in order to get possession and in order to have an effect on the game. And I suppose if he is your best player, that's a perfect way to play him. But even to, even to make him captain is a big call. You know, he's a young lad, you know... Um, to make him captain is a, is a massive call. You've got a lot of experienced heads in there. Um, to make him captain and for him, to, for the they seem to have a serious bond and the relationship seemed to strike off really quickly. Interesting, actually, watching the Raider Cup last week to see the two of them standing behind uh, Sergio Garcia <laughs> yeah. as, he, as he hit a shot, you know. Um, and Neil Gallagher, the, the two boys up on their tippy toes trying to get seen, but Neil Gallagher seemed to have no problem seeing, <laughs> seeing what was going on. You didn't on. need one of those little boxes of mirrors with the boxes no. that you see at a golfing tournament. We talked a lot, we've talked even today about the tactical side of things, but it's something that you know, Murphy, I remember the first time you interviewed McGuinness after he took over at Donegal, and you were saying, the guy has a charisma, and he, you need that too, because if you come in with your fancy-looking plan, and you're just... You you're trying to sell it to guys off a of flip yeah. chart. Yeah, and, and if you've no personality about it or no charisma, no warmth to you, you're not going to get too far with a group of young lads, I wouldn't have thought, but McGinn seems to have that. Yeah, like, just in spades. And when you meet the guy, when you talk to the guy, he's just a really warm, engaged character, you know? And I, I know that there is, there is an element of aloofness in that. I think a lot of the Donegal players 
have quite a bit of difficulty in getting him to answer his phone from time to time. You know that the it, it, it oftentimes it was filtered through Murphy. But I'm sh- when it comes to training sessions or when it comes to and it's the same for us when we try and get in touch with him, it can be difficult. But when you actually get to talk to the guy, he's hmm. you know he's a pretty charismatic fella. And I I don't know is. is is that something that was nearly required in the situation that it was? That, you know, you, you have all this tactical nouse and all the rest of that, um, but to change a culture in the way that he did, you need, you, you need guys to actually really like you. And more than respect, to actually really like you on a personal level. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the first things he did was, you know, he sort of come down to their level and he realised where they were at. And he, it wasn't the first time that he went for the Donegal job, and I think the fact that he that he was he had the wherewithal to put himself back in there and put himself back in the mix, uh, I think players responded to that. I think a big thing about McGuinness is a lot of football managers now, a lot of inter county managers don't really do that much coaching when it comes to uh, you know Tuesday, Thursday nights, Saturday mornings, whatever it is. It's left to a coach. It's left to the strength and condition to do one thing and then there's somebody who comes in and does the football end of things. McGuinness was bar- embedded in all of that. And you could even see it in the warm-up before the game, especially uh, when they won the All-Ireland. Him and Rory Gallagher used to take part in, in one of the exercises. You would kick past an exercise, just pop it on to somebody else. And just to see a manager, you know, whereas normally when you see the likes of Jim Gavin or Brian Cody or whoever, they're not involved, you know, necessarily in the warm-up. So McGuinness seemed to just throw himself into it. And the boys were saying about his enthusiasm and intensity for every single training session. I, I'm managing club team at the minute. I don't have that uh, intensity every single night. You know the way you, you're coming up, like he's a human being. He's coming off the. He could be coming off a bad day. He could be coming off a bad flight back from Glasgow. He could be, you know. But to still have that, you know, it's almost like he's trained his mind to say, "Well, if I'm there, I have to be in it." And <laughs> for coaches and managers, there's a big learning curve in that there. And I, I think you know when when I heard that, you know, it's something that I sort of would have focused in on and said like that's what I need to bring to training every night because players need to bring it and, and certainly whatever the manager does and whatever the coaches are doing sort of reverberates around the rest of the players. Do you need to bring a ruthlessness too because the one maybe black spot in the whole uh, tenure there is that a guy, Kevin Cassie, a guy who gave a huge amount of Donegal football for whatever reason wasn't there to enjoy the fruits of all that work and in, in a... Yeah, managers get rid of guys from panels all the time for various reasons it's, it's hard to know exactly how to judge that but then subsequently the refusing to talk to the journalist who had written that book Declan Bogue at the All Ireland Press Conference is that the kind of thing that people like ourselves who work in the media maybe get a m- bit more worked up over than those involved in Gaelic football because it just seemed a little bit petty at a time and we saw it a little bit from Brian Cody last week at a time of um, w- w- when you should be at your highest No I think uh, that was tinged with sadness, and probably that is a bit of a blip on on what otherwise sort of an impeccable tenure, you know, over Donegal. I felt sad for for Kevin Cassidy for what he'd given, and for the for the sort of lad that he is, you know, for people who know him, uh, you know, as a fella, as an individual. He just he just is a winner. He just wants to win. Um, I think it was unfortunate the way that went down. To be honest, I thought there was a there was a time when Kevin Kessie will tell you that there was a time that that could have that was something that could have been mended. And and Kevin Kessie himself uh, decided against that. Right. You know, so that that was something that McGuinness maybe shows probably that he is a big person in that. You know, he was well into. Um, to, to mend the differences and that, but at that stage, Kevin Kessie felt as if there was too much water under the bridge, you know. Um, so that is a bit of a blip. The Declan Bogue thing after the All Ireland was a bit petty, to be honest. Um, and showed it probably a, a little bit of a different say, but again, <laughs> that's that intensity. And you know, he 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 was standing up for for himself, for his county, for his players, and he felt that that was right. I felt it was petty. I said I felt as if you know, at the end of the day, like. There was nothing in that book that really, you know, was air chattering as far as I was concerned for somebody who's been inside, uh, you know, GA dressing rooms for the vast majority of my life. Like, there was nothing that I didn't think he was giving away any any trade secrets as such, you know. he, he Again, he got something in his head, <coughs> he believed in it, and he just, that's what he does, he goes for it. Uh, would you like to throw your hat in the ring as a successor? Yes. 
Um, <laughs> no, I wasn't elected. It's too far a drive. Uh, <laughs> there are upsides to that too, though. <laughs> yeah, the longer the drive. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think I think one of the things about McGuinness is that there's no doubt, you know, that his legacy is great. That he is that his job with the Donegal team for me is the greatest coaching and management job that has ever been done within the GA. One thing, the one other part of his legacy is that I don't, I don't think should go unmentioned is that it's going to be very difficult for the next person to come in. Not just because of McGuinness and, and the character he was and what he asked of his team and the style of play, but I think there's a lot of those players who, who are suffering as a result of that such an intense regime. And I I can't see Donegal winning any more All-Irelands within the next uh, five or six years. But they have... What he has done as well is that he has reinvigorated the whole county. They were in an All-Ireland minor final this year and they will you know, be back in the next number of years. But there's a lot of those players who are hurting as a, as a result of that regime. Yeah, the only thing is they, they will have Michael Murphy and he's a pretty extraordinary yeah. footballer. And McGuinness has met him, you know, has, has transformed him from the big full forward into possibly the most... The, the guy who has a decisive impact on more football games than... Anyone we've seen in a long time. So he's also he's also one of those players who, who's always a year or two younger than you think he is. Yeah, yeah. he's been around so long. Like, how That's can he only be? Yeah, for another he ten must, years. He must be well in his thirties at this stage. He's only thirty-three. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that'll keep going for a while. Oh, Shane, great to talk to you as always. Thanks, Thanks so much. Shane, Shane, Shane Curran with the kick out. The forty-two-year-old goalkeeper. Curran it out from goal. Here he comes. He topped it. He fought it. He's fifty yards out from goal. What a day for us, coming. All the mother niggas lame and you know it now. When the real nigga hold you down, you're supposed to drown. Bam. 1944 is the last time a senior tiger come out of here. And the one, 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 one be the last one. Bam. What a day for us coming. Leave a pretty girl sad reputation. Perfect. Sounds a bit like you've been stung by a couple of Jim McGuinness call screening maneuvers there. Oh, uh, he's like, well, here's his Murph guy again. No, just, a, just talk to Michael Murphy there, Kieran Hill. He's a busy man, uh, but uh, probably the he's he's both elusive from a phone call point of view, and also uh, from my time working as a sideline reporter, he was a great man to sprint at high speed away from you. the dugout <laughs> and me by extension towards his players. So uh, it would lead. I mean, you know, I back myself. You know, on the pace front, still got it at course on. Uh, you know, first first five yards, of course, in your head. Everyone knows that. But uh, so you got to know where he's going to start sprinting to. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, he has been elusive in the past. But uh, yeah, no, I, I actually can't overstate the, the man's personal. Charisma. Just um, can clear something up from earlier on. Carlo actually has a number of nicknames. The Dolman County? The Dolman County is one, Owen. I finally got there. But I prefer the Fighting Cox. <laughs> uh, There's a GA club called the Fighting Cox. I'm not surprised. I mean, follow, follow Me Up to Carlo is a great uh, song about, um, I suppose, slaughtering the, the invader. Massacre. It seems to be, it, it, it's about, it, it appears to be about one particular massacre yeah. of the English. A huge slaughter in the 16th century, I think. Yeah. Uses a few uh, cockfighting metaphors, of course. Hmm. Um uh, the Scallion Eaters is another one, but uh, there's, a, there's a whole list of them. Turns out. I'm just looking through some of these nicknames. I didn't realise that Donegal apparently, and I don't necessarily believe this is true, it refers to itself both as the Herring Gutters and self-pityingly as the Forgotten County. <laughs> <laughs> the Forgotten County is oh, like yeah. an editorial. That's not actually what Donegal people call their own county. Thanks, Ken. Uh, thank you, Owen. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Owen. Thanks very much for thank you, Kieran. listening to the show today. We will have the Irish Times Second Captain Football Podcast out a little bit later on to reflect on uh, another eventful weekend in the Premier League, particularly the push and shove match between Jose Mourinho. Yeah, it was Arsenal. the weekend was that good. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> that was the highlight. We'll talk to you a little bit later on. Take care. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.